0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the Scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 12. This is where John is going to see the pre-earth council, what we as Latter-day Saints often call the war in heaven. He's also going to see the adversary working to go against the image of this person known as the woman. This dragon is going to attack her, and this woman is pregnant with a child. And so today we're going to address that. Who's the dragon? What's the woman? What's going on with the child? Yeah, let me do a little bit big picture. Do you remember back in 1 Nephi, we
0: talked about how Nephi was going to be shown the same thing that John would see? So Nephi was not allowed to write the vision, but he does hint at it. He does comment on it. 1 Nephi chapter 22 is full of Nephi's commentary, and he's like, he's saying, I can't tell you how it ends, but I'm going to tell you some things that I've seen. Now, one of the things he says over and over and over again, is that the righteous need not fear. Now, big picture, what John is doing in this vision is he's saying the same thing. The righteous need not fear. Think about what we did in the last chapter, chapter 11. Don't worry, guys. The right people are driving the bus. Now, chapter 12, think of the brilliance of what he's saying. He's describing the scary events of our future, and he's going to calm us down by saying, we've done this before. We've won this victory before. And that was the war in heaven where we cast Lucifer out. So John is going to jump back and forth between apostasy, his future day, and premortal life. He's kind of telling the same stories at the same time. So we just kind of have to keep that straight. So the main character this time, we go back in premortal life, but we're also going forward into the church going into the apostasy. It's a similar image. We start with the bride of Christ, a major character here, a major character in the book of Revelation. This is the woman. This is the opposite of the harlot that we're
1: going to see in chapter 17. Speaking metaphorically, of course, the woman is the church here, right, Bryce?
0: That's what he says. He's he's going to tell us that in the JST. Now, if you're going to follow along, you need to pull up the Joseph Smith translation for Revelation 12. He redoes the whole chapter. The whole chapter is in the appendix. And you're welcome to read the King James Version, but I'm going to read from the JST. And in the JST, he tells us in verse 7 that the woman, which was the church of God. Now, here's this beautiful image, that this is the church, the bride, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, wearing the crown of stars on her head. Now, if you want to see the woman, look at that imagery, where it's stars on top, sun in the middle, moon underneath. If you've ever looked at the Salt Lake Temple, you'll notice that it has the stars, the sun, and the moon. But they're in the wrong order if we're applying that to the kingdoms of glory. Because the stars are at the top. If you look at the Nauvoo temple, the stars are at the top. And then the sun is in the middle and the moon is at the bottom. So that's not three degrees of glory where the sun would be at the top and then the moon and then the stars. And that is a reference to the woman. The temple is the woman. The temple is the church. It's the bride of Christ, and she's pregnant. Look at verse 2. The woman being with child cried, travailing in birth. Now, who would Jesus and the church give birth to? Verse 3, you've got to say, I'm going to suggest there's dual symbolism here. Number one, the child is Zion, The church and Christ are trying to bring about Zion. In the case of chapter 12, it's the millennial state of Zion. It's Zion in all of her glory and all of her triumph. And that's what the dragon's going to try and prevent, because Zion will destroy Satan. And so Satan is trying to stop the woman and her baby. But there's another side to that, and I like to consider that that child is me individually. That Jesus and the church, the ordinances of the kingdom, baptism, temple ordinances, Jesus and his atonement, combined with the ordinances of the gospel, are trying to give birth to a new version of me, a reborn version of me. And that's what the dragon is trying to stop. In all of our individual lives, he is trying to stop the woman from giving birth to a new reborn me. Coming out of the womb of the church. Think about the baptismal font. We are coming out of the womb of the church, reborn, and we become the children of Christ. And that's what the dragon is going to try and stop.
1: I really like verse 3 of the JST where it says that she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and his throne go down to verse seven of the JST where it speaks about the dragon that didn't prevail against Michael. That will be the archangel Adam or Michael. And the dragon does not prevail against Michael, neither the child nor the woman, which was the church of God who had been delivered of her pains and brought forth the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Now, Christ— in the ancient world, just represented the anointed one. So that's the king. Another good way to read or see the image of the child as Joseph Smith interprets it in the JST is that the child is the political kingdom of God that the woman is to give birth to. So the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God. And in our time, there's a lot of people that sometimes mix those metaphors. They speak of the church as a church And they get upset sometimes when they hear that the church has land or the church has influence or money, but they need to also understand that the church is a church, but it is also a kingdom. And the kingdom will one day give birth to the political kingdom of God when Christ rules on the earth in the future. And so the dragon doesn't want this to happen. And so he's attacking the woman when she's at this vulnerable state. There's a really good verse in the book of Alma when they're talking about the difficult circumstances that the church is while they're being attacked by their enemies. And there's an interesting verse in there where Mormon says that the saints were in a precarious circumstance. And I think about that today. The saints of God today are in precarious circumstances. We are this woman who is being attacked. We are this woman who is under oppression from the dragon. And the image of the dragon is this old... As ancient literature, and what I like about this is it 's perpetually relevant. It comes from the ancient Near East and Babylonian literature, where there is this dragon Tiamat that 's kind of attacking the forces of order, and Tiamat kind of represents chaos. it's in the Psalms. it's in the what's called the Baal cycle, which is the Canaanite literature that was very much influential as the Hebrew Bible was constructed. Uh, this is an image of death and the sea. Yam, which is that word for the sea, is this also god of chaos that's kind of attacking forces of order. We also read about this dragon in the Psalms with images of things like Leviathan, or the the sea that's attacking forces of order in places like Psalm 89 and Psalm 74, where Jehovah is portrayed as an individual who is fighting against the forces of chaos. And then there's a really good Christian piece of literature called the Hymn of the Pearl, where it talks about a young prince who leaves his pre-earth life. He leaves his heavenly father and mother and comes to earth, and he forgets who he is. And in the course of time, his Parents in heaven send a messenger to him to remind him who he is and remind him that he has to find the pearl and he's lost his garments of light. And so he has to go through a series of adventures to try to reclaim the pearl so that eventually he'll receive his garments of glory when he comes back to his heavenly throne, to his heavenly parents in heaven. Well, when he finally finds the pearl, it's in the clutches of a dragon and he has to extract the pearl from the talons of the dragon. And I remember the first time I was reading that, I thought of The Hobbit as a young boy. I remember reading that book. And Tolkien is, he's borrowing all of these images as he spins the tale of the hobbit who has to go and he has to approach the dragon. Now in this story, in, in Tolkien's story, it's the Arkenstone. He's got to get the Arkenstone. But in the midst of this The hobbit finds out who he is, and he's able to negotiate peace between all these forces of chaos. And part of it is we have to escape the clutches of the dragon. So this is a beautiful image. It's also a violent image because later we're going to read... That And and Bryce alluded to this, there's going to be another image, the antithesis of the woman, which will be the whore, and she's drinking the blood of the saints, and she's riding a dragon. And John, in his day, is going to show us in code speech that the dragon and the woman and the city and the hills on which she sits represents political powers of his day. And what I like about this is it's perpetually relevant because it applied in John's day. It applied during the time of the Reformation. And it applies in our day as well. So there's a lot of images going on here with the dragon and the woman. So, Mike, let's pause in that fight. In the
0: middle of that story, there's a pause here as if to say, now, don't be alarmed. Don't be concerned. We're going to win this victory because we've won it before. So all of a sudden, in verse 6, we go back to premortal life. There was war in heaven. Michael fought against the dragon, same dragon. And we defeated him there. The dragon prevailed not against Michael, neither against the child, neither against the woman, which was the church. Neither was their place found in heaven for the great dragon. Now, I think that sentence we could spend sermons on. We don't necessarily kick Satan out by force. We don't force him out of heaven, and we don't force him out of earth. We're not going to force him out of the millennium. The reason we win is we make no room for him in our hearts. Neither was there place found in heaven for the great dragon. Now, back to that chapter I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that Nephi's commenting on what he saw, not writing it. First Nephi 22, verse 26. Now, listen carefully. This is how we win the victory here. Because of the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Therefore, he cannot be loosed for the space of many years, for he hath no power over the hearts of the people, for they dwell in righteousness, and the Holy One of Israel reigneth. You see, John and Nephi are seeing the same thing. And the way we win the victory is we make no room for Lucifer. When Satan no longer lives in any of our hearts, when he lives no longer lives in our heads, he's defeated. He'll leave. And that's what we did in premortal life. Neither was there place found in heaven for the great dragon. We made no room for him, so he left. Now, how did we do it? You've got to read verse 11 of the JST a hundred times this week. This is how you defeat Satan in your head and in your heart and in your home. For they have overcome him, number one, by the blood of the lamb. You've got to have Jesus' help. We can't do it on our own. You've got to bring Jesus into your life and then you can defeat Satan. I'm reminded of that scripture in Mosiah chapter three, verse 19, that the natural man is overcome by yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. As you invite light into your life, as you bring Christ into your life, you defeat Satan. So overcome him, number one, by the blood of the Lamb, and number two, by the word of their testimonies. That's the formula. For they loved not their own lives, but kept the testimony even unto death. Now think what President Nelson has been saying. Take ownership of your testimony. Do you see why? It is the secret to overcoming Satan. He is going to throw all sorts of darts at you, getting you to doubt, getting you to take your own armor off. But if you hold on to the word of your testimony and you have invited Christ into your life, that's how we did it there. We kicked him out by not making room for him. We can do the same thing here. So that's the victory. Now, back to the battle of the dragon.
1: You know, Bryce, one thing I really like that you just mentioned here in verse 11 is this idea that they kept the testimony even unto death. That word to keep, now obviously Joseph is just giving us a straight translation, but both in the Greek New Testament and in the Hebrew Old Testament, that word for keep can mean to guard as well as to keep. And I think that a big question that will be asked of us one day is how loyal have we been to the Savior? I think loyalty is is probably more important than what we know. The church is very much being accused by all kinds of enemies, and I think that's another image of the dragon. I mean, look what it says right here in verse 10 of the JST. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them. Before our God, day and night. That's the root of the word Satan. The word in the Hebrew is Ha Satan, the accuser or the one who is accusing. That's what the adversary does. And I find it very interesting that those that attack the restoration aren't replacing it with anything, they're just trying to tear it down. And I just want to put in this image in your mind of constructing a house. It takes months, months, sometimes years to build a beautiful home, but you could take it down in a day. I mean, you could burn it down to the ground in a matter of hours or you could demo it real quick. And if you think about your testimony, we it has to be something that's guarded and protected. And I like that word keep. And I think that's another thing the dragon is trying to do. He's just simply trying to deconstruct the light that's in us. I really do see so much of Revelation discussing things that are going on in John's day, things that happened in the past, and things that are also future, things that have been and shall be. And that is really the root of a lot of the things that are happening in apocalyptic literature, both in and out of the canonized text. If you remember, Martin Luther did not like the book of Revelation because it didn't fit with his expectation. And yet Jesus used apocalyptic imagery in his teaching. And the book of Revelation really sits in this position. Position. And so this image of the dragon is both past, present, and future from John's perspective. So if you look in verse three of just the King James, if you go to verse three, it says, There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads at ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Now, a star is a beautiful image for spirits. And I really like this because if you remember back when Abraham spoke to Jehovah, He's told Abraham that you will have as many stars as there are in the heavens, you will have children because that's a beautiful image for the spirits in heaven that are waiting to come through Abraham and Sarah. And when it comes to this seven-headed dragon, you can't really just take one head off, can you? No, nope. you can't kill a
0: seven-headed dragon by chopping off his head. You can't defeat evil where it manifests himself. You have to defeat evil in the heart. And that's that message of you, you the testimony in Jesus, and I do it in my heart. That's where I defeat evil. You kill a
1: seven-headed dragon in its heart. Yeah. I, one thing that you said to me recently, Bryce, and we've talked about it before in previous podcasts, is... It's the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, but you can't switch off the darkness. What do you got to do to get the darkness to go away? Talk about that briefly, Bryce, because I think this is really important. No one ever flips
0: the switch to turn on darkness. You control darkness by inviting light in. Darkness is the absence of light. Light isn't the absence of darkness. If you want to defeat Satan in your head, If darkness is filling your heart and your thoughts, the way you turn the darkness off is by turning the light on. I like that. The moment you turn even the smallest amount of light
1: on in your thoughts, in your hearts, it will repel the largest amount of darkness. I think that's so important because if I've had a testimony and the darkness is overcoming, and even individuals who leave, they've left their testimony, so to speak, or they've walked away. There's still light in them. It kind of reminds me of that image, George Lucas portrayed it with the conflict between Luke Skywalker and his father, Darth Vader. And there's this one line in the, in the films, I'm sorry, I just can't help myself, I kick out all the time on this, but there, there's this one line where Luke says, I knew that there was good in you. And the father, even though he's gone down this dark path, is redeemed through a great act of righteousness and redemption because Luke saw the good that was in him. And Mike, I think that's one of the most important messages I would have you
0: pull out of Revelation 12 this week. If you read the end, it's scary. Verse 12, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and they who dwell on the islands of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. So watching from premortal life, someone shaking their head saying, good luck, everyone on earth, because he's coming after you and he's going to torment you. He's, verse 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And let me be clear, he is coming after every one of you. He's coming after your children. He's coming after your family. And some of you have watched that dragon defeat some of the people that you love, and you've watched the people you love fall away. Now, let me share one of the beautiful messages of Revelation chapter 12. This woman, the church, ran into the wilderness to be protected from the dragon. Now, I want to read verse 5. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there. Now, this is a clear reference to the church going into apostasy. During the dark days of the apostasy, the church was like a woman that went into a hiding place and was fed there. You see that also in verse 14, Therefore to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time. Again in verse 16, the earth helpeth the woman, and the earth openeth her mouth, and swalloweth up the flood. Now, think about that. There is no way that the church completely died during the apostasy. Had that been the case, there's no way we would have had a Bible produced during the dark ages. There's no way the death of the church could have produced the Bible in the 1600s, the King James Version. There's no way we could have had a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution of the United States if that woman had completely died. She was alive. She was not dead during the apostasy. They were feeding her. Now, as a great cross-reference, you may want to turn to Jacob's allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. Do you remember that moment where all the fruit goes bad? This is representing the apostasy, and all the fruit has gone bad. But listen to what the allegory says in the middle of the apostasy. Behold, because thou didst graft in the branches of the wild tree, they have nourished the roots, that they are alive, and they have not perished. Wherefore thou beholdest that they are yet good. Verse 36, he says, I know that the roots are good and for mine own purpose have I preserved them. Do you see what Revelation 12 and Jacob chapter 5 are teaching? You couldn't kill the church during the apostasy. And even during that dark period where all the fruit went bad, the roots we're still alive. May I suggest to all of you sweet parents who have watched the dragon conquer one of your children, their testimony is not dead. You can't kill a testimony. It's still there. Being fed by something, the roots are still alive, and you hold out hope that when the time is right, that testimony is going to come out of the wilderness and live again. It is my testimony to you that the apostasy couldn't kill the church. The dragon could not kill the woman. And the tree of the vineyard did not lose its
1: ability to bring forth good fruit.
0: And you hold on to
1: that hope. You know, I like how you take that and speak about individuals. I also like the way Mike Wilcox broadens the perspective and says, think about Christianity. I love this quote. We'll put it in the show notes and I'm just going to read part of it. But Mike Wilcox says that the story of Christianity's survival in Europe is a fascinating tale. We owe a deep debt of gratitude to the hundreds of individuals who preserved, copied, debated, and lived the tenets of Christ's teachings. The great cathedrals of Europe have always, in in Mike's words, filled him with thanksgiving, for they represent the triumph of the woman over the dragon. And then he continues, God prepared a place for the woman in the monasteries, kingdoms, art, cathedrals, and the writings of Europe. She was nourished and passed through a reformation, and enough was left to send a 14-year-old boy into a grove of trees in response to a verse of scripture that still survived 2,000 years. When coupled with the surviving remnant of the new world, buried in a hill by the Smith farm, the woman would arise out of the wilderness to shine as clear and as fair as the moon. I love that quote. I love that idea. That even though the church went into the wilderness, there was enough there to cause Joseph Smith to ask the question. There was enough there for the great thinkers of the Reformation to question some of the things and the practices happening in the 15th and 16th centuries. And the reformers, even though they weren't perfect, did so much good to bring about the enlightened age. And I think. A lot of that has to do with Christianity's influence. The idea that everybody has a place, that even those that some would consider undesirables, well, it was the documents of Christianity which changed that, in my opinion, that helped people to see the worth of a soul. The woman was nourished. Now, I don't know what's going on with 1260, In Revelation, it says, in verse 6 of the King James, it says that she went into the wilderness and a place was prepared of God that they should feed her there 1,203 score days. That's 1,260 days. Now, Joseph changes it to years, and I don't know why, but perhaps it has something to do with Joseph Smith's perspective, that the woman is being nourished for a period of time and... There's a lot of things you could do with the math, and I really don't know what to do with it, but we'll put some really good things in the show notes for you to consider from Dr. Perry, and he's going to be really careful, and he's going to say, hey, we don't know, but there is some provocative imagery there happening. Let me just suggest one possible idea. Previously in the book of Revelation, John writes about the fellow servants that should be killed and that the, the martyrs of the fifth seal are awaiting their, their killing and this future work. And then when we read of John, John the Baptist, when he appears to Joseph and Oliver, he says, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron. Now remember, John was one of the fifth seal Christian martyrs, and he lays his hands on two men that were to be martyrs in the last days. Now, obviously, Oliver did not fulfill that role, but he would have had he remained faithful and said that post was taken by Hiram. Joseph sealed his testimony with his blood. Thus, in my opinion, kind of putting those two ideas together, the fellow servants that are mentioned in the fifth seal that are looking forward to the fellow servants that will be in the future killed. And that those two images, in my mind, create a bridge of light where the saints that are in the spirit world are also carrying on the traditions of Christianity. And the work of teaching the gospel of Christ, as we read in 1 Peter 4, 6, is continued in the spirit world. And so one way to look at it is that the church is never gone. It's continuing in the spirit world. Another way to look at it is the author who is writing this is John. And if you remember at the end of the gospel of John, the Savior says, you are going to be on the earth. Uh, Third Nephi 28 Jesus says to the three Nephites, you desired the thing that my servant John desired. John is a translated being living in the wilderness, carrying on the torch, as it were. Think of like the Olympics, the torch, the light never goes out. So there's some really good images there with what I would consider kind of a difficult question. You know, what's going on in the King James verse six, the the 1260 days or the years as in Joseph Smith, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Now, if you're interested, Talking Scripture has just released a couple new videos on
0: temple symbols, and in that class number one, we talk about the symbolism of seven and the symbolism of three and a half. Notice how often three and a half comes up in this chapter. In verse 5, the 1260, if it's 1260 days, that's three and a half years. And notice in verse 14 that the woman went into hiding for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half. In that video, we talk about the fact that seven is the symbolism of completing your work. God completed his work in seven days. Well, half of seven would be three and a half. And so the symbolism of three and a half is a good work that temporarily got cut short. But you hold on, folks. It's not going to be cut short forever. It's coming back. We noticed that in last chapter of chapter 11, where they lie in the streets for three and a half days. So again, it's that reference to a good work getting cut
1: short, but hold on, it will come to completion. It's very interesting. As far as wilderness, Bryce, another thing that I kind of like here is this idea. It's almost like the Exodus motif. They leave slavery. They come out of Mitzrayim, the place of straight places or tightness. That's the word for Egypt. And they go into the Midbar. They go into the wilderness. And then you read the conquest narrative in Joshua, where they come triumphantly with the Ark in procession with Joshua and the priests, and they go and they they lay claim to the land. And that's going to kind of be the end of the book of Revelation when tears are wiped away and the, the Savior comes and everything is put back. But right here, we have this rising up out of the wilderness. And the church does go into the wilderness many times in history. Lehi does it. There's a group of people called the Rechabites. They go into the wilderness in the Old Testament period. The Essenes of Jesus's day, they see the temple as a a corrupt edifice because of what's happening in Jerusalem. And so they take their texts and they go into the wilderness. And we think that They are the ones who are the guardians of what today is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there's a community that lives out in the wilderness. And if you go to Israel, you can go and visit Qumran and you can see the entrance to the caves and you can go to the shrine of the book and see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there were individual communities that went into the wilderness and it kind of represented this place where we're waiting. And I think that ties into what you're saying about three and a half, the work has been cut short. Now turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 5, verse 14, and
0: hear the Lord's declaration. Knowing that the woman went into the wilderness for a time while she was fed there, the church went into apostasy, how many righteous groups went into hiding, the gold plates went into the earth to be hidden for a while. Think of that imagery of going into the wilderness and now hear the declaration which we now utter. And I wonder if this is what Moroni is shouting out from the top of the temples— And the Lord says, and none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony among this generation in this, the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon, fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. I wonder if that's what Moroni is trumpeting on top of the temple, that the church has come out of the wilderness. She is no longer in hiding. Come find her. Come gain the help you need to conquer Lucifer in your own battles. Because the dragon's coming after each one of us individually. But we conquered him in premortal life. We kept the church safe during the apostasy. We can win this victory. We can overcome the dragon today with the Savior's help and with the power of our testimonies. And collectively, that is who we are. We are coming out of the wilderness, and we are restoring the truths that were once lost when the woman was chased into that wilderness.
1: You know, Bryce, I think that's a good place to end. So with that, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next time when we talk about Revelation 13 and the helpers, the beasts that are going to rise up and help the adversary in this battle. The dragon has some helpers, and they're coming after us. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week.